0: Yes, yes, yes. All right. If you have your Bible, I hope you do. Turn with me. Uh, let's let's go to well, go to Genesis four. That's where we're going to end up. And uh, once you turn there and have your Bibles open, we got a lot to cover. We've in this series, we're trying to look at why is Jesus the refuge for the nations, and we're wanting to trace it all the way from the beginning of the Bible. And last week. We talked about God's heart for the nations is revealed in His plan for creation and His promise of redemption. And we said the place to go is Genesis 1, 26 through 28. That's where missions begins. God's plan for the creation, and I hope you got this. Maybe you can fill in these blanks. It's His presence ruling with His what? People over His place. God's presence, ruling or dwelling with His people over His place. That's as simple as you can get it, and that's the essence. The Bible is God-centered, God's presence, but it's people-focused. God's people ruling over all of creation. And that's the essence of Genesis 1, 26, through twenty-eight. So let me read that for us. Genesis 1, 26-28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God's presence with God's people ruling over God's place. God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And if you think about that passage, there is God's decree to rule. But there's also God's design, male and female. God has a design for His creation and He has a decree and a purpose for it. And how's that going to happen? It's going to be through us displaying our image. And we said image is a unique relationship with God's presence, a unique role representing as God's people, and a unique rule as we rule with God, for God, And under God, we rule over creation. But we saw, too, that in Genesis 3, man, Adam, and Eve rebelled, didn't they? They rebelled, and they refused to trust and obey, and instead they were deceived, and they disobeyed. And not only did they rebel against God's decree to bear His image, and to rule over creation. But they also rebelled against God's design. And we saw that in that rebellion, there's a reversal of the order. Instead of God, His people, and creation, the serpent usurps God's place, goes to Eve, and then Eve goes to Adam, and God's a leftover that's left out. Alright? So there's that reversal. But here's the good news. How does God respond? In Genesis 3, he responds to their rebellion with judgment and with grace. And we saw that God made a promise of redemption. And here's the promise. Its essence is in Genesis 3.15. Many people see this as the first proclamation of the gospel. Genesis 3.15, I have it in your notes. And notice... I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you in the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Well, what's that mean? What's the promise? Notice, the spiritual war is going to be won by a death blow to the serpent's head, but it includes a death bite to the heel of the woman's seed. So there's a death blow that crushes the serpent's head. But the serpent is able to instill a bite on that foot before it crushes its head. And so there's going to be victory through death. Do you see that? Now, how much of this did Adam and Eve understand? We don't know. know. But that's okay, because God's going to progressively reveal that. But we can see that... The seed of the woman is going to be a man. Uh, you know, seed is masculine. There, I'm promising you the seed of the woman. It's going to be a man who must do what the only create must do what only the creator can, and that is have victory over the enemy that's already defeated them. So okay, so the serpent has defeated them, but somehow a man is going to defeat that which has already defeated them. And yet in that process, that man must pay for the sin that mankind has committed. And the only way that's going to happen is through a God-man. A man must do what only God can do. Overcome the serpent and pay for the sins of humanity against an eternal God. So why do we see God's heart in that? Well... God's heart for the nations is seen in the fact that there's one race. Because we all come from the same parents. And there's one purpose. We're to fill this earth bearing God's image. We're to reflect His image. But there's one problem that we all have, and we have sinful, rebellious hearts. And there's only one solution, this promised seed. This is God's heart for every nation that they would hear of the promised seed. That's why the Franklins are in the Dominican Republic planting another church. Now, here's what I want to say for this morning. If God's missionary heart for the nations begins in Genesis 1, and that's what we just reviewed, then what do we learn about His heart for the nations after the fall? And that's Genesis 4 through 11. In Genesis 4 through 11, we see God's heart for the nations after they've fallen. And in fact, they not only fall, but we're going to see they get progressively worse. Now, how many of you, if, have you have you read Genesis 4 through 11 ever? It's one wild ride. Okay, let me give you a, just an overview. You know, Genesis 4, there is a murderous sibling rivalry. The very first two brothers in the world fight. No surprise there, right, moms? And they fight, and Cain murders Abel. Chapter 5, there's this monotonous death toll. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And then in chapter 6, you encounter the mysterious sons of God who have sex with the daughters of men. And, and there's giant-like Nephilim striding around the world, and, and it's just bizarre. And then you come to chapter 7 through 9. And after humanity becomes so rebellious, God determines to wipe out the whole earth with a global flood. And yet, it breaks His heart to see His creation in such a sinful condition. And so we have the building of the ark, and we have the global flood. Then you come to chapter 10. And no one, his family are saved, and he has three sons. And they are told to be fruitful, multiply, and multiply they do. But they fill the world with more sinners again. And in chapter 10, you have the record of 70 nations. And, uh, and, and they're listed there. But what happens to these 70 nations? Instead of filling the world with God's image and making a name... For God, they make a name for themselves, and instead of spreading out, they gather in one place and they build a tower. And it, it, it most likely it was a tower for worshiping God uh, or, or a tower for worship. But instead of worshiping the one true God, they wanted to make a name for themselves. They want to build and worship themselves. And so again, God's heart breaks, and He cares enough to come down and see the rebellious nations. And in judgment, but mixed with mercy, as we're going to see in a moment, he confuses their languages, because they only had one language. And that's why they were able to cooperate. And so he confuses their language, and he scatters the nations. And that's how Genesis 11 ends. The fact is, in these chapters, there's one theme that ties it all together, and it's this. Every intent of the human heart is evil. It is evil, rebellious, the very opposite. They want nothing to do with a relationship with God. They want nothing to do with making His name famous. And they want nothing to do with ruling under Him and over creation. Instead, they set themselves up as God. So, where's God's heart in all this? Well, here's what I want you to see. We're going to learn that there is God's heart for the nations in Genesis 4 through 11. And here it is. The living God is a missionary God who offers hope. Hope for the rebellious nations. He offers hope. This is probably one of the most depressing sections of Scripture, and yet is one that is filled with exceeding hope. Because Genesis 4 through 11 reminds us that there's hope at the end of the rainbow for all rebellious nations. You see what I did there? There's hope at the end of the rainbow. What's at the end of the rainbow? It's not a pot of gold. It's the hope of God that is extended to all nations. And let me show that to you. God teaches us that principle in three ways. God's hope is revealed in three ways. So let's look at the first one, and it's this. The hope for the nations is revealed... In God's pursuit of His rebel creation, in spite of their depraved hearts. God pursues His rebel creation. And what is interesting, and that's why I gave you this chart. What's interesting is that as humanities, and I'm sorry that looks like an American flag, but I guess it does reflect our nation a little bit. As humanity increasingly gets sinful, God still reaches out to them and offers hope. So, look at the red there, uh, chapters 4 through 5, we see sin's alienation played out. Adam and Eve, sin causes separation, alienation, division, and it's played out in their two sons, and it's played out in the lines of their two families, right? Then you have sin's corruption multiplies in uh, 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 Genesis six one. It says this: Genesis six one. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land. Well, what happens as men multiply, sin multiplies and corruption spreads. That's Genesis six through nine, and then it climaxes in Genesis nine or ten through eleven where sin now revolts. There's a full revolution that fills the earth. Isn't it interesting? Alienation bears fruit, corruption multiplies, and revolution fills the earth. It's the very opposite of God's plan of being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth. So that's how sin increases. But look going across at the top. As mankind sins, God responds in two ways. He responds with judgment, and He responds with grace. And basically what this chart does is take you through these chapters, chapters 4 through 11, and shows you the increasing, the, the increasing spread of sin, the consistent judgment of God, and the undeserved offer of grace. Isn't that beautiful? And you can just walk yourself right through it. And it begins with Cain. He murders his brother. And so what does God do? God curses Cain. And there's always separation due to sin. But God shows mercy to Cain. Because Cain says, it's ironic. Cain says, I'm a murderer, but I don't want to be murdered. Yeah, but you deserve murder. But what does God do? He shows him grace and he prevents anyone from murdering Cain. And then Cain has this Cain goes out having received mercy and he goes out and he builds a city to make a name for himself. He builds a city and names it after his own son. He's gathering together, we're going to be rebellious together. We're going to, I'm going to rule this city and I'm going to make a name for myself through my seed. Now God doesn't immediately judge Cain in his rebellion. He waits for the flood, but God does show grace. He gives Eve another son to replace Abel. And chapter 4 ends with this interesting phrase, and men began to call on the name of the Lord. Men began to call on the name of the Lord. In other words, there's a godly line that by grace through faith, begin to call on the Lord, and God in His grace answers them, because they're doing what man was created for, obedient worship. And so, Adam's. Uh, you go to chapter 5, Adam's line is born in his likeness, which means they're sinners. God's judgment is, they die. And so, in chapter 5, eight times, and he died, and he died, and he died. You say, where's grace in that? Well, right in the middle of chapter 5, there's a guy named Enoch. And, God, and he's walking with God, and God so enjoys the fellowship he has with Enoch, he says, Enoch, come on up here, you're not going to die. And so there is hope in the midst of death. Even if we do die, we can be taken up into God's presence if we walk with Him while we are alive. And then you get into chapters 6 through 9. And you got these demon-influenced tyrants who 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 claim the name. We are the sons of God. We are the godlike rulers. And they create harems, and they just pick women, and they they say, Hey, you know, you're looking pretty good. I'm going to take you into my harem, and I'm going to take you, and and I'm going to sire all these kids, and I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm going to be like God. And humanity begins to live out the depravity of their hearts. And so what does God do? God judges them, and He does it in a couple of ways. One, He says, look, I'm not going to let you guys live forever. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let you sin forever. You can only... I'm, I'm going to give you 120 years, and then there's going to become a flood, and it's going to wipe out everybody. But where's the grace? There's a lot of things I've written out there for you. The main thing is, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And even though he's going to destroy all creation, one man and his family will survive by God's grace. Then you come to chapters 10 through 11, and humanity just gets worse. And you have this guy named Nimrod who's from the line of Cain. And like Cain and Lamech before him, he's going to be a city builder, a kingdom builder, and ultimately, he's going to be a tower builder. And all of humanity gathers to build that city, to make a name for themselves, to worship man. Man is the measure of all things. God comes down, scatters and confuses, scatters the nations, confuse their languages. But also, in that judgment is mercy. So let me, let me say this. What's interesting about God's judgment is so often, even in the judgment, there is mercy. So when He judged Adam and Eve with a curse, there was also a promise of redemption, right? And so even though He's judging the nations by confusing their languages, we're going to see that that was gracious because as long as they could communicate, their sinful hearts would cooperate to to do more rebellion, which would bring more judgment. And God says, My heart isn't to judge. My heart is to save. And so I'm going to separate you, so that you can't cooperate. And also, in scattering the nations, now listen to this, in scattering the nations, he's setting up the Great Commission. Go, make disciples of what? All these nations. So he's laying the groundwork for the Great Commission, even in his judgment. All right, there's so much more there. We must move on. All I want you to see is in the midst of increasing alienation, corruption, and revolution, rebellion against God, God responds with judgment and grace. He pursues His sinful creation. Now, here's the second way hope for the nations is revealed. I want to zero in on the covenant God makes with Noah. Here's the second way that hope for the nations is revealed. God's provision of a covenant with Noah and all of creation. The key to Genesis 4-11 through 11 is the covenant that God makes with Noah and all of creation. So, turn to chapter 6. Turn to chapter 6 and look at verses 17 and 18. Chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. 18. So, here's God speaking to Noah on the basis of grace. Noah's a sinner like everybody else. But by faith, he's following God, and God shows him grace. Look at chapter 6, 17 through 18. Behold, this is the Lord speaking, behold, remember that means God's about to do something. I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which there is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything on the earth shall perish. But, and there's one of those big buts of the Bible, okay? But, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons, and your wife, your sons' wives with you. And so he builds the ark, 40 days, 40 nights... They survived the flood. God remembers Noah and causes the waters to recede and the ark to come to a rest. Now look at eight, chapter 8, verse 15. Chapter 8, verse 15. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, Have we heard this before? That they may breed abundantly on the earth. And there it is. And be fruitful and multiply on the earth. That's referring to animals. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. And what is the first thing that Noah does? Here he is on dry land. For the first time, and any of you have been on a cruise or been on a boat and on rocky water, let me tell you, it's good to get on solid ground. What's the first thing he does? Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings, more than one, many on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. And the Lord said to himself, Not to anyone else, just to himself, because he's large and in charge. He's the ruler of life. He is the Holy One. And he says to himself, I will never again curse the ground on the account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. What he's saying is, look, man, I know, is still sinful. Man is still sinful, but in my grace, I am never again going to bring a global flood To destroy all creation. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. And here's the here's the promise. While earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This world will continue until God says otherwise. Are you with me? And God bless look at chapter nine verse one blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them now here it is Genesis 1:26 through 28 repeated be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth but there's going to be some changes "...the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given." In other words, you're not going to rule in peace and harmony any longer. There's going to be a conflict and a fear between mankind and the rest of creation. Number three, uh, Verse 3, "...every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give it all to you as I gave the green plant." So before... Man was vegetarian. Afterwards, man is free to be carnivorous. And so, barbecue has been blessed by God. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Verse 5, Surely I will acquire your life, from every beast, and require it and from every man. And from every man's brother I will acquire the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. You are still in God's image, and the only person who can take a life is God. Because he created life. Therefore, if an animal kills a man, he will suffer for it. If a man kills another man, he will suffer for it. God establishes capital punishment, because He's the Creator. And He says, as for you, verse 7, He repeats it again now, be fruitful, multiply, populate the earth abundantly, and multiply in it. My creation purpose is still ongoing. Your sin can't hinder God's purpose. Satan can't hinder and stop God's purpose. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons and with him, saying, verse 9, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and the beasts of the earth with you, all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you. And what is it? and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I'm making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and never again, he just keeps saying this, never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. And when the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Isn't it interesting? The rainbow is not for us. It's for God. It's for God to withhold His wrath. It's for God to remember His grace that He's showing to all creation until His purposes are fulfilled. Verse 16, And when the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and and all the flesh that is on the earth. Wow! What can we see here? Well, first of all, let me tell you. Here's the first mention of covenant in the Bible. What is a covenant? I've tried to give you a simple definition. A covenant is a promise between two parties that creates a special relationship that is confirmed by an oath. Usually, you swear. And usually, with a blood sacrifice and a sign to remember the binding commitment. It's A covenant is a promise that's made very formal, and it creates a new relationship, a new accountability, a new connection. Uh, the two parties can be two people, like in marriage. Marriage is a covenant. It can be two people. But it could also be God and people, okay? It can be God in an individual, like we're going to see with Abraham, but it can also be God with a whole nation of people. Okay? And the promises that are made in a covenant, they can be one-sided or they can be two-sided. In other words, in this case, it's one-sided. God says, I will never again judge. He doesn't ask creation to do anything. He doesn't ask Noah to do anything. It's a one-sided promise. Also... It's usually involves a swearing of an oath. In other words, so help me God. I will keep this covenant type thing. But when God swears to keep a covenant, He has to say, I swear by myself because there's no one greater. Usually the covenant is confirmed by blood sacrifice. Now, we don't do that when you get married. Okay, Marriage may exact blood from you, but that's not what we do. But when God's redemptive purposes... There's usually a blood sacrifice, and there was here. The covenant also usually includes some sort of sign by which the covenant is remembered and and the consequences that come if you break the covenant. So, when you get married, you have a the sign of the covenant is a wedding ring in our culture. And that's to remember, I need to keep my promises. And it's to remember that I shouldn't violate those promises or there will be consequences. Now, there's more I could say. Some of you, I have not said enough about covenants. Others of you, I've said too much already. So let us move on. What's the idea? Don't lose this. Here's the idea. God's creation purpose is now sealed with a covenant between the Lord and all of creation. So let me give you some points under this. Let's just kind of move back through. Look at Genesis eight seventeen, And let's just kind of break it down. First of all, the Lord repeats His blessing to His creatures. The Lord repeats His blessing to the creatures. The first thing that happens as they come out of the ark, God says, look, my creation purpose still stands. Satan can't stop it. Sin doesn't hinder it. Be fruitful and multiply. Number two, Noah offers obedient worship. He offers obedient worship. The, the beauty of what Noah does is he reflects what image-bearers should do. They should worship the one true God. And he offers up whole burnt offerings. And we're going to see later, as you read in Leviticus, whole burnt offerings meant everything went up to God. And whole burnt offerings were often for sin offerings, and they were also dedication offerings. So, what's going on here? Well, Noah understands how he was saved. It wasn't because he deserved it, it's because he was a sinner saved by grace. So, he offers up a thanksgiving, whole burnt offering. But, all, but Noah also understands why he was saved, and that was to be totally dedicated to God. So, here you see the response of an image bearer you give thanks for God's forgiveness of your sins, and you dedicate your whole life to Him. So He offers obedient worship. But also, number three, the Lord's wrath is satisfied. That's pretty cool. In 821, the Lord smelled the smoothing aroma, and the Lord said to Himself, Ah, there's hope! My grace can create image bearers and transform them from rebels to worshipers. And so God's wrath is satisfied. He's pleased with the obedient worship, and He promises to Himself to preserve creation in spite of their sinfulness. Number four, God repeats His blessing on mankind through Noah. And so, having determined to spare creation, He looks at Noah... And he says, my purpose still stands. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with my glory, be my image bearers. But number five, God does make some changes in how this age, this age, this dispensation. There's different ages, different stages of how God manages his creation. And he makes some changes. He says, look, before I gave you the plants, now I give you plants and animals. Before, there wasn't any government. There wasn't any judicial system. Now, when someone murders or takes a life, there will be justice served. So God's making changes. He knows that man's sinful and there needs to be greater control. And number six, God establishes His covenant. He establishes His covenant. So, let me give you five characteristics of this covenant with Noah, okay? We're in chapter 9 now, and look at verses 8 through 17. Here's the five characteristics of a covenant in the covenant with Noah. Are you ready? Here they are. Number one, it's a promise. Covenants are a promise. And the promise here is this. No matter how sinful man becomes, or uh, no matter how sinful man progresses, I will not destroy creation until my purposes are fulfilled. So Christian, every November, every four years, God's people seem to freak out over who's going to get elected. Remember, God's made a promise. Um, he He didn't say he's going to preserve America, but he did say, I'm going to preserve my creation in the rebellion of man cannot overthrow my purposes. Do you see that idea? That's a very gracious thing for a holy God to do. So every day we wake up and every new season that comes is a manifestation of God's common grace to a rebellious rebellious world that I am not going to destroy you today. It's a promise. Number 2, it's an unconditional promise. The Lord alone makes the promise. He doesn't ask anything of Noah. He doesn't ask anything of creation. It's an unconditional covenant. Number three, it's a universal covenant. Yes, He speaks to Noah, but through Noah, He, he it's a covenant with all of creation. God's made a covenant with, with your dog. God's made a covenant with the birds of the air. God's made a covenant with those crazy sea creatures that no one ever sees that are in the depths of the ocean. And He's made a covenant, and He says, Look, I'm not going to wipe this world out until my creation purpose is fulfilled, until my redemption promise is fulfilled. It's universal. Number four, it's a covenant with a sign. And that sign is the what? the rainbow but you know what it's actually in scripture it's a bow and indeed it is a bow so think of a bow and arrow right are you with me and yet which way does a bow bend when it's attacking it's this way right and the arrow goes out this way but god's bow is upside down why You see, he's not attacking the earth. It's a reminder. The bow in the sky is, look, I have every right to declare war on you and destroy you, but I am not. I'm going to preserve creation. His bow is aimed back towards him. He, what a beautiful picture. He will take the judgment through his promised seed and son. Isn't that beautiful? And what's interesting is it's a sign for God to remember. So when God looks down and sees the sin of humanity increasing and increasing, He sees the bow and He says, I made a promise not to wipe them out until my purposes are fulfilled. And number five, it's a covenant with a mediator. And that mediator is none other than Noah. It's with the whole creation, but who does he talk to? He talks to his mediator, Noah. Okay? Now, here's the last thing I want you to see in this section. Noah and his family, they get out of the ark. Noah is an obedient image bearer, and he offers up worship that's pleasing to God. God says, be fruitful and multiply. So he's got three sons. But before all that happens, Noah gets drunk, which is a sin. And there's this weird thing where he gets drunk and he's lying naked. And his one son, Canaan, looks at his father's nakedness and there's an implication that more is going on there. We don't know. And his other two sons walk in backwards and cover up his father's nakedness so they don't see it. And what's going on there? Well, Noah and his family are sinners saved by grace. Okay? They're sinners. It's like a reminder that, hey, Noah didn't get any of this because he was sinless. The guy gets drunk after worshiping. And mankind hasn't been cured of their problem. And so what's going to happen is three, these three boys are sinners just like Noah and just like Adam, and they're going to populate the earth. And that brings us to chapters 10 and 11. And here's the third picture I want to end with, and it's this. God's heart for the nation is revealed in His purpose for the table of nations and the tower of Babel. His purpose for the table of nations and the tower of Babel. So here's what happens. Mankind has gotten so sinful, God says, I am going to destroy the whole thing. But in judgment, he shows grace to Noah, a sinner just like you and me. And Noah's sons are sinners. And so they begin to populate. And God told them, be fruitful and multiply, right? But when they are fruitful and multiply, what are they filling the world with? More sinners. And these sinners increase and increase, and they're listed as 70 nations in, in, in Genesis 10. 70 nations. And then you come to Genesis 11, and what are these 70 nations? Before they become these nations, God, God kind of tells you ahead of time. Before they become nations, they're one people with one language. And instead of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, they come to this one place in, in what's going to become Babylon, and they gather in one place, and they use their one language, and they say this, We don't want to be scattered. Let's build a city. We don't want to make a name for God. We, want, we don't want to live for the fame of His name. Let's make a name for ourselves. And they build a tower. And let's have this tower reach up to the heavens. The idea is... Let's declare a war on God. And so God comes down in judgment, confuses their language, scatters. So here's what I want you to see. What was God's purpose in recording the table of nations in Genesis 10? What's his purpose? I want you to jot down two things. One, it reveals God's heart for all people. 70 nations, 70 nations, and God knows every one of them. And God has a heart. It reveals God's heart for the nations. Genesis 10 ought to be written on our hearts. We need to know about the nations. That's why you need to come to World Outreach. You need to learn what God's. You can't learn about all the nations at one time, but you can learn more and more. You can learn about the Dominican Republic. You can learn about South African Africa. You can learn about all the nations. So it reveals God's heart for the nations. Number two, God's purpose is to represent all the families of the earth that's going to be blessed next week by Abraham. These nations represent the families of the earth. In other words, in a sense, they represent God's target for the gospel. His target is all nations, not just us, not just people we like, not just people that look like us or talk like us. God's heart, His target is all nations, okay? Secondly, what was the purpose in confusing and scattering the Tower of Babel? Well, His purpose was judgment but it was also grace. His purpose was, I'm going to confuse their language so they can't cooperate in becoming bigger sinners. (laughs) Okay. And I'm going to scatter them so they can't unite in rebellion and I have to judge them. So he's showing mercy in judgment. He confuses and scatters them to prevent them from communicating and cooperating in their rebellion. So look in your notes, and here's how we'll end. God is gracious to offer hope for the languages He confused and nations He scattered. Listen, He judges them in hope of redemption. Isn't that cool? And how's that happen? Well, on the day the church was born, all three of these judgments were reversed in Christ. If we would go and read Acts chapter 2, I would encourage you to do that this week. Every nation in the Roman Empire is represented on the day of Pentecost. And then what's cool is God's people, by the Spirit, are speaking the praises of God and each people hears it in their own language. Isn't that cool? And then Peter preaches the gospel, and through the gospel, God calls the scattered and gathers them into the one people of God united around his promised seed. Is that just not the coolest thing? And you and I are a part of that. You've been gathered, you've heard the gospel in your language. Your sins have been forgiven. You have been gathered into this local church. And now our goal is to go to the nations proclaiming the judgment and grace of God. And we can keep doing it because God's rainbow is in the sky. And God's going to preserve this earth no matter how bad it gets. And let me tell you, last week, if you watch the news... The future of our nation, it's going to get bad. It's going to get bad. And persecution is coming. But God's rainbow is there. And we're here for a purpose. Amen? And we're here to share that same grace that God has shown us. Even though we're sinners like Noah... And maybe and probably we're going to sin after church today. We may sin in church. I don't know what's going on in your heart. But what I know is we are God's set-apart people. And God's purposes are going to be accomplished. And God judges, but He loves to extend grace in the midst of judgment. Amen? Is that just not good? And so... Why is Jesus a refuge for the nations? Because ultimately, through these nations, and the way Genesis 11 ends, through these nations, there's going to come through Noah, his son Shem, we're going to arrive to a man by the name of Abraham. And we'll meet him next week in Genesis 12. And through Abraham will come David, and through David will come Jesus Christ, the God-man. And so there is a refuge for the nations. But if God doesn't restrain His grace, if God, I'm sorry, if God doesn't restrain His judgment, this whole earth would be up in smoke. And so Genesis 4 is a rainbow-like reminder that there's only one race with one problem. Every person is a depraved sinner by birth and choice. It's a reminder that everyone deserves only one thing, God's judgment. It's deserved and it's inescapable. It's a reminder that there's only one way of salvation, by grace through faith in God's covenant promises. And those promises center on a person. And remember, there's only one hope for the nations. God's refuge for the nations is His promised person, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And until Jesus comes, God withholds His judgment. And now that Christ has come, but He's coming again, God is withholding His judgment. And so the real question is, whose side are you on? Are you still a sinner without grace, dead in your sins, or have you crossed over into life, and you've accepted God's grace by faith in His covenant promises? And more than that, are you like Noah? You understand why you were saved. Or, I'm sorry, you understand how you were saved. It wasn't you, it was him. And so you live with a grateful heart every day. And you know why you were saved. And you dedicate yourself as a whole burnt offering. Romans 12, 1 and 2. By the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto Him, which is your reasonable act of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Isn't that good? God's got hope for the nations. And it's you and I that have that message. Let's pray. Father, I know that uh, we've covered a lot, but there's a lot in your word And sometimes we want things to be so personally relevant, we miss the big picture. But God, you've revealed to us today the big picture. We sin, you judge, but you offer grace. Oh, Father, may no one here reject your grace today. May they cross over from death to life. And Lord, may we not be ungrateful followers of you. May we not be double-minded. May we be wholly dedicated and yield ourselves completely to you. Father, we thank you for the hope and the reminder of the rainbow. But most of all, we thank you for the promise of your Son as our Savior and as our sinless sacrifice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.